and welcome back. It is once again time to go geeking. We have got an hour of geeky stuff to talk about. No interview again this week. Um, entirely my fault, actually, because I just forgot to finish scheduling it. So um, hopefully next week. In fact, I've got a couple of things lined up for next week. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going to make a big deal of them because, um, well, my current success rate at getting these things organised is pretty low. But anyway, we do have a lot to talk about, and we're going to start with a story where it's not entirely obvious what the facts are, except that sections of fandom are really rather quite annoyed about it. So what's going on? Well, two things I know for absolute certain. One is that Lego are releasing a set featuring Boba Fett's spaceship. And on the box, it says Boba Fett's spaceship. Now, that has led to some people saying that Disney are renaming Boba Fett's ship, which up to this point, as far as I'm aware, has never actually been named on screen, but is known to be called Slave One. Now, it's called that because his dad, Django, named it that. Um, I forget which bit of canon that comes from and whether it's a bit of canon that is in fact still canon, since a lot of stuff was just ditched when Disney bought Lucasfilm. But that's the assumption that people have, have jumped to, that Disney are changing the name of the ship. And fans have reacted in a, a fairly predictable way, which is to say many of them are quite annoyed. Now, I don't know whether I can get exercised about this or not, because once I started fact checking this article, I found that I couldn't, in fact, find anything anywhere definitively saying that, yeah, this is a policy at Disney that this is something that they're doing. They don't want the word slave. And uh, I mean, if they are changing the name, that strikes me as blinking stupid. But I don't understand why they would change the name. I mean, I can see that some people might say, oh, they've got a, it's, it's all woke. Or they've got a problem with the idea of slaves, which, well, first of all, we, we probably should have a problem with the idea of slaves. But Disney still calls Princess Leia's gold bikini the Princess Leia slave costume or the Slave Leia costume. So I don't see why they would have a problem with the name of a ship called Slave One. Aha, uh -huh. I hear you ask, but then why has Lego not put the word Slave One on the box of their Lego set? And I think probably because if you're a kid, and apparently Lego's still marketed at kids, who knew? You might not know that Boba Fett's spaceship is called Slave One, but you'll definitely know it's Boba Fett's spaceship. And it might be just as simple as that. A lot of people are taking it very seriously, though. Um, Mark Anthony Austin, uh, Daniel Logan, both been on social media saying that it's ridiculous. Um, but equally, as I say, there's no official statement from Disney about this at all. So, I don't know. There is a change.org petition. Uh, links in the show notes if you um, are of a mind to sign it. I just think, yeah, if Disney are doing this, I think it's stupid. But I can't get exercised about it. Honestly, if this is the most important thing that people have got to worry about, I genuinely envy them. Because... I can't help thinking that this is not a hill I want to even have a mild argument on, let alone die on. So, yeah. You, of course, may have different thoughts. Uh, and in that case, I'd love to hear them. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk for all of your comments. 
Uh, particularly, actually, if you know more about this story than I do, because it just doesn't add up to me. I don't get it. Just don't get it. And, of course, speaking of things that have got sections of the Internet exercised about stuff. There's a corner of the Internet today that is absolutely freaking out with joy. And, of course, as with anything nice that happens, there's another corner of the Internet that is really, really grumpy about it. Because Neil Gaiman, bless him, is back in the news. Now, he's been causing some controversy online in recent weeks because of the casting of the Sandman TV series that's being done for Netflix. But he's not a man to limit himself to one project or indeed one controversy. So he's back because it's been announced to the joy of many, including me, that Good Omens is going to get a second series over on Amazon Prime. Now, my relationship with the original book of Good Omens goes back all the way to its original publication. It's a book that actually I'm not sure aged well, but which I adore and not because of Gaiman. When I picked up my copy of Good Omens from the Doncaster branch of WH Smith's many decades ago now, I picked it up because it had Terry Pratchett's name on the cover. Now, if you were a listener to Geeks at the Gates back in the day, you will know how important Terry Pratchett is as a writer to me. I've done whole episodes about him. I think it's fair to say that his work has influenced me more than literally anything else in my life. So when people do things with Terry Pratchett's work, it matters to me. So I was nervous when they said they were turning Good Omens into a TV show. But ultimately, I think I liked the result. Michael Sheen and David Tennant as Aziraphale and Crowley, respectively, were particularly brilliant. And as adaptations go, I actually genuinely think that Good Omens might be one of the better book-to-screen things that I've ever seen. However, although the book does sort of hint at the possibility of one, there isn't a sequel to Good Omens. For more than 30 years, it stood alone, a single volume. Until now, it would seem. Because it has been announced that Good Omens Season 2 is coming to Amazon Prime. Now, given that I really liked the first season of Good Omens, more of a good thing is, generally speaking, a good thing. But this will be an extension of Terry Pratchett's work that Terry Pratchett, regrettably, will have no direct influence on because... He's dead. And however a safe pair of hands I think Neil Gaiman is, he's only half of the Neil Gaiman Terry Pratchett team that created the original. And that makes me nervous. And I'm not alone. Whilst I think it's fair to say that the, the majority of reactions that I've seen about this news have been positive and gleeful, even. There has been some tutting. I think, on reflection though, I think it's going to be fine. If you take a look at Neil Gaiman's journal, uh, which is found online and links in the show notes, he's pretty clear about his responsibility to Terry Pratchett. Um, and he also tells a story of his younger days, when he and Terry Pratchett were both young authors hitting the US convention scene for the first time and sharing a hotel room to save on cost, and jet-lagged, unable to sleep properly, they spent the night plotting out a sequel to Good Omens. So this remains in your game into memory. I'm sure it's been distorted over time, but there will still be something of Terry in the work. And you know, we have to acknowledge at this point that the world moves on and things change, things develop. Neil Gaiman does take his responsibility seriously. He knows that Good Omens isn't his alone. He made the show in the first place because it's something that Terry wanted done. Terry Pratchett was a very practical man. And I think 
his response to the success of season one would be to make season two. So yeah, I'm going, at least for now, at least until I've seen it, I'm going to take the view that more of a good thing is probably a good thing, and I'm going to leave it at that. After all, if it turns out to be terrible, what have we lost? Absolutely nothing. The book will still be there. Season one will still be there. So seriously, geeks, what have we got to lose? Of course, Neil Gaiman isn't the only comics big shot in the news this week. Uh, Grant Morrison, who is from the same era as Gaiman, really. Gaiman maybe got into comics a little bit sooner than Grant did, but they've both been around since the late 80s. And honestly, Grant Morrison was doing amazing work at the end of the 80s. He wrote what I consider to be the best Batman story of all time, because contrary to popular and incorrect opinion, the best Batman story of all time is not Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. Yeah. The best Batman story of all time is, of course, Grant Morrison and Dave McKean's Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on Serious Earth, which should not be confused with the Arkham Asylum video game, which it predates by several decades. And most of Grant Morrison's work has been at DC, or at least DC adjacent, uh, because a lot of it was at Vertigo. They were responsible for The Invisibles, which was one of the best stories to come out of the 90s. And indeed, I mean, Grant Morrison did a lot of their creator-owned stuff at Vertigo, and they also did a lot of mainstream stuff for DC. You know, they've written Batman, they've written um, Swamp Thing, but all good things must come to an end. And it would appear that Grant Morrison is moving. The forthcoming Superman Stroke Authority miniseries will be the last work from the pen of Grant Morrison to grace the pages of a DC book for what Morrison reckons will be, and I'm quoting now, quite a while. Indeed, given the uh, the vagaries and weirdness of publication dates, we have already seen, in fact, Grant Morrison's final work for DC, uh, which was the second season of the Green Lantern strip that he did. That was written after the Superman Stroke Authority thing. It's just that Superman Stroke Authority thing is coming out later. Links in the show notes to the interview that Morrison gave to Newsarama about this. It's not a very long interview. In fact, it's not really an interview. I think they probably just phoned him for comment. No news really on what they're doing next, except it's likely to be TV. Um, Morrison's done quite a lot of TV work recently. So, you know, that would be logical. But who knows with Grant Morrison? They have been an enigma and an unpredictable genius for as long as I've been reading comics. So who knows? One thing's for sure, though, I am very much looking forward to seeing Superman take on the authority. If you are unfamiliar with the authority, they're a a superhero team. Well, they're not really. They're sort of an anti-superhero team from the 90s. Created originally by uh, the now not entirely unproblematic Warren Ellis, uh, spinning out of a book called Stormwatch, which was from Jim Lee's Wildstorm studios over at Image. Obviously, DC got the rights to the Authority and all of its characters when Jim Lee sold Wildstorm studios to DC and became, you know, the boss of DC basically. So, if you're unfamiliar with the the authority. I should say that they're, they're a really interesting match with Superman because the attitude of the book, The Authority, is pretty much the antithesis of the ethos of Superman. Superman is all about helping. He's a genuinely good guy and he will go out of his way to avoid causing harm. The authority was Sort of like the Justice League, but much harder-edged and much more cynical. They occupy an alien spacecraft known as the Carrier, which they don't actually know everything about, and which resides in something called the Bleed, which is the gap between realities. From there, they police reality itself, I guess. I won't go into too much detail about the whole history of the Authority, because frankly, it's not relevant and it's a subject probably for another time. Notable in this context, though, is the fact that the authority contains a Superman analogue. 
as I said, these characters were created outside of DC and were then brought into the DC universe. And one of the things that they did while the thing was still at Wildstorm and Wildstorm was still independent of DC was create Apollo and the Midnighter. Apollo is basically Superman. He's powered by the sun. He's an incredibly nice guy. He's motivated to do good. He's ridiculously powerful and extremely charismatic, just like Superman. It's certainly the case that back in the 90s, people would, would refer to him as Wildstorm's version of Superman. And of course, the Authority also contains a Batman analogue character, the Midnighter. He's a genetically engineered soldier who can never be beaten in a fight because he can see what the move you're going to make three moves before you make it and therefore can counterattack. No fight with the Midnighter lasts very long and he always wins, just like Batman. Midnighter is also the dark and grim one in the relationship. And I use the term relationship advisedly because one of the things that made Apollo and the Midnighter not just crude ripoffs of Batman and Superman was the fact that they're gay and they're in a relationship, a very committed one. Uh, they both love each other very, very much, in spite of their many, many differences. Apollo does not approve of the Midnighter's violence. Midnighter rolls his eyes constantly at Apollo's do-goodery. And I'm sure we all know people whose relationships work pretty much like that. So it's going to be interesting to see Superman coming up against, working with, not quite sure exactly how it's going to work, the authority that I don't think Superman has ever come across the authority before. I know Batman's met the Midnighter, but I, I'm not sure that Superman's met Apollo. So really looking forward to that series. I, I'm saddened that it's the last of Grant Morrison's work we're going to see at DC for a while, but... I am just going to go ahead and assume that whatever Grant Morrison chooses to do in the future will be brilliant, and therefore, I wish him every luck with it. So that's it for the comics news, at least for now, and uh, we'll move on to something that has a jingle, shall we? Science. Except, just like last week, it's not really science we're talking about, it's engineering. But Thomas Dolby didn't have the foresight to record a song about engineering, so we're sticking with the science jingle. And it's sort of science-y, I guess. You see, one of the common complaints that people like me have about living in the future is that it's not the future that science fiction promised us. Not even close. And the two things that we lament the most, that science fiction promised us that we've just never had, are jetpacks and flying cars. I would quite like one of each. Now, jetpacks is a subject for another time. Flying cars, though, they keep cropping up. I mean, the truth is, the very first prototype flying car was actually manufactured in 1949. Uh, the Taylor Aerocar didn't actually get licensed to fly until 1956, but nevertheless, flying cars have been around in one form or another since the 40s. Uh, there are links in the show notes to the uh, Taylor Aerocar. I think there's only one in the world that's currently still flight capable, and it doesn't fly very often because. It's the only one in the world, and it would be really embarrassing to be the pilot that crashed it, wouldn't it? Now, the thing about the Taylor Aero car is that it actually takes a little while to transform it from a car to an aircraft. The, the idea was that you would sort of tow the wings and the tailplane behind the car, and then when you wanted to fly, you know, you drove to your runway, and then you would had to attach the tailplane and attach the wings and presumably do some flight checks to make sure the wings wouldn't just fall off when you took off. And all of that was time consuming. It wasn't ever really a practical thing. And that's why flying cars have never really taken off. <laughs> See what I did there? Um, now, though, there's a new kid on the block. Um, it's powered by a BMW engine and it's been built in Slovakia. And the prototype has now made a 35-minute flight between international airports in uh, Nitra and Bratislava in Slovakia. The air car could fly about 600 miles in one go. Uh, it's got a, an operational ceiling of uh, about 8,200 feet. That's 
two and a half thousand meters. And so far, it's got 40 hours in the air. Now that's not long. It's going to need a lot more testing before this thing's even slightly a practical proposition that somebody might actually buy. But it's a start. And what's particularly noticeable about this version of a flying car is that it looks really cool. The Taylor Aero car is a little bit weird looking, to be honest. It's not sleek. It's not flash. Almost nothing about the aesthetics of the Taylor Aero car say, hello, I'm a flying car. Whereas the air car looks the business. It looks like a sports car. And even better, rather than taking ages to transform from a car to a plane, the air car can be converted in two and one quarter minutes. So suddenly it's looking quite attractive as a thing that people might use. You know, you can drive yourself to the airport, to the airport, the airfield, whatever you want to call it. Um, drive to the end of the runway, convert your car without being in anybody's way, particularly for very long, take off and you're off to the races. Of course, it's not practical. I mean, I, I, I'm struggling to think of a practical use for a beast like this. It would probably be much more efficient to own just a regular boring old car and a light aircraft. Drive yourself to the airport, get on board your plane, fly your plane to wherever you want to go. Except, of course, if you do that, you don't have a car at the other end. So you've got to hire a car, you've got to get a taxi, you've got to use public transport. And if you're the kind of person who owns their own light aircraft, you probably don't want to use the bus. So the flying car does, in fact, have a sort of purpose. It means you can drive to the airport, fly to the airport of your destination, and then drive out of the airport in your own vehicle. I can see that there could be some attraction to that, apart from it's just standard cool rating, there is some utility to that. And that's going to be key if things like this are ever going to become an actual thing. It's a two-seater, but it's not a big two-seater. I, I can't help thinking that it's going to be quite cramped. And it's clearly not going to be able to use it as your main family car. So it is a little bit restrictive. But Klein Vision, the company behind the flying car, is pretty confident. And they reckon that the flying car sector could be worth one and a half trillion dollars by 2040. And people are calling it part of the future. Um, Michael Cole, chief executive of Hyundai Europe, has called this something that is part of Hyundai's future. It's being seen as a solution to some of the strain that's being put on our transport infrastructure. And uh, this is where I kind of check out a little bit because it is undeniably cool. And without question, I would love to have one of these parked on my drive. I really, really would. But, and it's a huge but, however cool flying cars might be, I think they've missed their time. The idea that you want to drive around in a car that you can then turn into a fixed wing aircraft that needs a runway to take off. I think that time is gone. There are easier ways to get in the air than that. I mean, why do you want to drive to the airport when you could have a vehicle equipped with rotor blades using, I guess, what people would call drone technology, although I don't like quadcopters being called drones. You could have a vehicle that could drive around like a car, but also take off vertically from your drive. It wouldn't need a runway. So I think probably that's the future of flying cars. I think it's probably not a car that you have wings on it. I think it's probably a car that has fold out rotor blades, one on each corner, and that can possibly even fly itself autonomously because 
The other problem with flying cars is the inherent danger that they pose to well, pretty much everybody. I mean, let's say these things became widely used and lots of people had flying cars. They'd be falling out the skies like confetti. Have you seen how people drive? So if we're going to have a lot of these things in the air, they're not going to be able to be piloted by people. They're going to have to be autonomous. There's going to have to be some kind of linked, networked air traffic control thing that stops collisions from happening. So however cool the air car is, and it really is cool, links in the show notes to the pictures and hopefully some video as well, it looks the absolute business. I don't see a practical application for it. Great for joyriding, great as a thing to show off with. It's the ultimate gadget, but it's just not realistic. So yeah, that's my massive bucket of cold water right there. Yeah, you know, there will come a time when I do a piece on some kind of science or engineering project that I'm not massively cynical about. But today, sadly, not that day. So onwards. And it's time to look at our comics of the week. I'm going to start with a series that's been a comic of the week already. A couple of weeks ago, I recommend a series called Crossover, which is about what happens when comics characters break into the real world, remaining comics characters. It's a fantastic series. But the issue that came out this week is a little bit different. And I really enjoy what they did with it. Crossover is usually written by Donny Cates with art by Jeff Shaw. The issue out this week, issue seven, is penned by Chip Zdarsky. Now, Chip is a fairly prolific writer. And no, Chip Zdarsky is not his real name. And that comes up in this issue. Basically, the idea of Crossover is that comics characters are becoming real and are at large in our world. And Zdarsky picks up this idea and runs with it. The premise is that the real Chip Zdarsky, under his real name, which I'm not going to tell you, it's in the book, is on the run, being pursued by comics characters that he may well have created himself and who want revenge for the terrible things that have happened to them in the stories that Chip has written. Because you really don't want to be a Chip Zdarsky character. Bad things happen. To characters created by Chip. It's one of the most meta comics I've read for quite some time. I'm not going to tell you what happens. Chip meets a character that he created, a character that appeared in an issue of his book Sex Criminals, in fact, and I'm saying no more about it than that. Things happen. It's really good stuff. How much it's going to feed into the wider story arc of Crossover, I have no idea, and frankly, I don't care. I enjoyed this issue so much. It actually would stand perfectly well on its own. So if you've not read the whole series and you just want to pick up this particular comic, that would work. It's a, it's a perfectly formed standalone story that will nevertheless slot like a favoured Lego brick into the crossover story as a whole. Also on the rack this week, and well worthy of your attention, is Godzilla Rivals Hedera, celebrating 50 years since the creation of Hedera the radioactive slime monster thing, who has been a foe of Godzilla's since the very early 70s. This is a chunky one-shot book, uh, so you don't need to read anything before or after it. It's about the size of, of two regular comic books, which is a good job because it's about the price of two regular comic books also. And it centres around, unsurprisingly, Godzilla and Hedera having a massive fight and pretty much destroying New York in the process. But that's not what the story is about. Massive battles between kaiju are difficult to do in an entertaining way in comics because essentially it's just pictures of giant radioactive lizards knocking things over. That kind of thing can be very entertaining on film, but in comics it doesn't cut it. You have to have some kind of story. So here we have a mercy dash as a guy tries to get somebody, I'm not going to say who or what the relationship is, but trying to get somebody across New York in the midst of this fight so that they can get medical attention. And he claims then do something to stop the kaiju fight and save everybody. 
it's a great little story. There's lots of tension. There's lots of twists and turns. There are several twists and turns that you will not see coming, which is always a good. The characters and their motivations are nicely realised. The the theme is very much one of consequences, but also choice. The the central narrator is envious of Godzilla because Godzilla never has to make a choice. Godzilla simply acts, whereas they, the protagonist, have to make choices all the time and they have to live with the consequences of those choices. It is, in fact, surprisingly profound for a comic about a giant radioactive lizard fighting a giant radio radiation-absorbing blob. And as I said, a couple of very clever twists at the end just lift this, making what could have been a fairly run-of-the-mill story into something that actually shows the potential of this kind of narrative. Really good. I recommend you give it a shot. It is, in fact, a good rack all round this week, which is why we're going to have four, four comics of the week this week. And the next one is something I think I've mentioned before on the show as well, because there is a new Usagi Yojimbo series out this week. Now, if you are unfamiliar with Usagi Yojimbo, he's been around for a long time. The name is Japanese, and it literally means rabbit, bodyguard. And that's because Usagi is a rabbit. He inhabits a world full of anthropomorphic animals that in all other respects is pretty much exactly like Shogunate-era Japan. And it's really important not to get put off by all the humanoid animals, because this is not a funny book for kids. The art style is cartoony. I don't know why Stan Sakai chose to tell this story using anthropomorphic animals. Perhaps he just didn't like the way his people looked when he tried to draw people. I don't know. But the chronicles of Usagi Yojimbo are deadly serious. To be honest, I wonder if one of the reasons he chose to take the cartoon animal route is because if he made the artwork realistic, it would almost be too graphic and too violent sometimes. Because Usagi Yojimbo is a ronin, a masterless samurai. And the life of such people in Shogunate-era Japan was violent. You, you earned your living with your swords. And you answered any slight or any insult with immediate and devastating violence. Because your position in society depended on it. It really, really did. And the book is realistic in that way. Now, the ongoing series has drifted between various publishers. It's been mostly at Dark Horse, I think, through its time. Uh, it was with Mirage Studios for a while, and it's currently with IDW. It's a great book, and I heartily recommend it. But Isagi has been wandering around feudal Japan for a very long time now, and there are an awful lot of classic stories in the back catalogue that are well worth rediscovering. And one such is the Dragon Bellow Conspiracy. This is set in the early years of Usagi's adventures and has never been presented before in colour because the old Usagi comics, uh, like most indies back in the 80s and early 90s, were black and white. So they dug out the artwork, they've had it coloured, and they're representing the stories. Now, the Dragon's Bellow Conspiracy is all about a plot against the Shogun, which is discovered by a friend of Usagi's. Usagi gets involved. It's a great story. Stan Sakai's art is the epitome of clean. The only artists that I can think of that can challenge Stan Sakai for clarity of line are um, Terry Moore of Strangers in Paradise and Jeff Smith of Bone. I, it really shows that this was originally intended to be black and white line work. It's so clean. It's so crisp. And the story itself, absolutely gripping. It's a classic for a reason. So, again, if you have seen Usagi Jimbo comics and, you know, you've not wanted to pick it up because it looks cartoony, give this a shot. If you've thought, you know, there's a lot of Usagi Jimbo out there, I don't have time to get caught up on all the continuity and all the intricacies of what's gone before. Give this a try. 
It's a nice little standalone story, well drawn, beautifully told, engrossing characterization. It's an absolute belter. Finally, in this section, I'd like to draw your attention to a comic called Parasomnia. This is from the pen of Cullen Bond, who has written all manner of gloriously twisted, surreal horror stories, mostly Aftershock in recent years, actually, although he's been pretty prolific for quite a lot of publishers. This particular book is coming at you from Dark Horse, and it follows a guy who's lost his son. Not as in the son's died, but literally his son is lost. As he searches two worlds to try and find him, he becomes embroiled in something much darker as very powerful beings who wish to rule reality start to break down the barriers between worlds. It's a very dark narrative. Um, it's maybe got a little bit of a Stranger Things vibe to it, only with fewer teenagers and more hobos. It's beautifully illustrated in a sort of dark watercolour style. The palette of the of comic is perfectly reflecting the tone of the story. Cullen Bunn has been a favourite of mine for, for a very long time, and this is just more evidence of his genius. So, all of those well-deserved picks of the week this week. If you happen to be passing the shop when we're open, drop in and have a look. I promise you will not be disappointed. And so, back to television, and yet another thing that's upsetting a particular segment of the internet. Have you been watching Loki? I hope you have. Uh, just in case you haven't, here's the return of an old friend. Spoilers! Spoilers! Yes, the return of the spoiler horn, because what follows will contain spoilers for episodes one, two, and three of Loki. So, you have been warned. If you don't want to hear spoilers about Loki, I suggest you skip forward about five, maybe ten minutes, and then you should be fine. So, yeah, Loki. Have you been watching it? Absolutely brilliant. Always been a fan of Tom Hiddleston in that role. Was a little bit nervous about what they might do with him in a TV version, particularly because he's canonically dead. But they've done what Marvel does so well and dodge around that beautifully. So, well done, Marvel. It's one of the better retcons of, of a death I've come across because you haven't done it, so well done. Because the fact that Loki shouldn't be alive is actually dealt with as part of the fabric of the show, which I guess may have taken it down the avenue that it's gone. But I'm enjoying Loki and his time at the Time Variant Authority. There's something interesting going on there, but much more than I'm enjoying Loki, played by Tom Hiddleston. I am very, very much more enjoying Sylvie, played by the brilliant Sophia DiMartino. So her her appearance as an alternate version of Loki was the big reveal in episode two, and it worked. It really worked, and she's fantastic. The interaction between her and Tom Hiddleston is on point. They've got real chemistry. It's great. So, the story follows Loki as he's recruited by the Time Variant Agency to hunt down another Time Variant, another version of himself, who is doing something and attacking the the operatives of the Time Variant. I'm going to call it the TVA from now on, it's easier to say. So, Loki gets himself attached to an agent, the long-suffering, world-weary Mobius, played brilliantly by Owen Wilson. I did not know he had this in him. I clearly need to watch a bit more Owen Wilson, who, if I'm honest, I know mostly from sofa ads. But yeah, it's been a great ride so far. Really, really enjoying it. But as so often happens, they've managed to find a way to irritate that bit of fandom. You know the bit I mean. And they've done this by acknowledging for the first time on screen that Loki is bisexual. Now, I already know what some of you were thinking. Some of you were thinking, well, duh, that's been hinted at in the comics for literally years. And some others of you are thinking, well, duh, have you ever read Norse mythology? Because seriously, 
There's a couple of Norse stories where Loki has sex with a horse. So, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Really, really, really isn't. But of course, some others of you are thinking, oh, for goodness sake, why do we have to keep having non-conforming sexuality rubbed in our faces all the time? Well, first of all, that's not that great of an image. And in any case, you're not. Um, I mean, this was done. If you've seen episode three, you know how this was done. It's a throwaway comment about having had a little bit of both. And it's just subtle. To be honest, I missed it until people started making a fuss. So it's not being rubbed in anybody's face. It's simply a thing that's acknowledged and we move on. It's not part of the story that he's by. It's a thing that gets mentioned. Now, I know what some others of you were thinking now. Well, if it's not part of the story, why are we mentioning it? I don't know. Why are we mentioning it? Why is it that nobody asks that question when somebody turns out to be straight? Because nobody ever does. If uh, a, a male character talks about having had a girlfriend, nobody raises an eyebrow. If a female character talks about having had a boyfriend, nobody raises an eyebrow. So why should an eyebrow be raised when a male character mentions that he's had a couple of boyfriends? It, it, it's it's not rubbing anybody's face in anything. It's an acknowledgement of the world as it exists. And I'm sorry to... I'm going to have to do a, a jingle for the boring preachy part, aren't I? But since I haven't got one, this is going to be it. It's important. I know I go on about this a lot, but I go on about it a lot because it's true. Representation matters. It matters that we have gay characters out there, that we have lesbian characters out there, that we have bisexual characters out there, that we have trans characters out there. It's important because people need to see themselves reflected in the culture they consume. Now, for me, as I've said before, this is easy. I'm a cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-aged white guy. My TV and my movies are literally crammed full of people who look like me and who are like me. And it's so crammed that people don't even notice that it's so crammed in the way that fish don't notice water. It's just there. But imagine you're not me. Imagine you're gay. You're a teenager. You're growing up. You don't see anybody like you on the telly. Because until about 10 years ago, you didn't. And if you did, it was a massive deal and people were shocked and appalled. I can't imagine what that must have felt like. Imagine you're growing up trans and you're trying to make sense of how you feel about yourself and your body and you can't find any representation to reassure you that what you're going through is real and normal and you're not insane. I can't imagine what that's like, but it's happening. Imagine you're, you're bisexual. You know you have attraction to, to people of all genders. And you don't see that. You see, you know, you, you understand what it is to be straight. You understand what it is to be gay. But you don't see any representation of how you feel. As a teenager, that's got to be hard. And my goodness, being a teenager is hard enough. So it matters that these things are acknowledged. And that we see characters who just incidentally happened to throw this in. And it's not made the point of the story. We, we need to have moved past that now. We need to have it that, yeah, a character's sexuality is irrelevant. That doesn't mean we're not going to mention it, but it doesn't have to be the source of the angst or the source of the story. It, it's Things need to move on in the way that Loki shows us they have. And, and I've got to say, it's about time, MCU. It's about time. So, yeah, couldn't be happier that it's happened. Really love the subtle way it was done. And I'm pleased with most of the reaction. I mean, the, the general reaction online has been positive to this. Uh, the, the usual suspects have said the usual things about woke agendas and all of that stuff. But honestly, I'm beginning to think the best thing to do with the usual suspects is just ignore them. Because I don't think 
they're the majority they think they are. So yeah, big fan of that little detail. And I've got to say, it's not just the story and the performances that are making this show so great. It also looks stunning. Absolutely stunning. And it hasn't gone for some of the more common tropes. It's shown some real originality in design. So next time you watch it, have a look at the time variant agency's offices. They're very retro. They, they've got a sort of 70s feel. And at first, I didn't like that. But the more I think about it, the more it makes sense. The TVA is an ancient organisation. Now, I've worked in a couple of ancient organisations. And do you know what they don't do very much? They don't buy new kit. They upgrade what they've already got. Yeah, but the basic stuff, the basic hardware, they tend to keep using as long as they can. Um, example, towards the end of the space shuttle program, uh, this would have been 2008, 2009, something like that. NASA needed to replace a part on the space shuttle. I forget which of the orbiters it was. Uh, it was probably Discovery. I think it was Discovery, but whichever one it was. Um, if I can find the source of this story, I'll, I'll chuck a link in the show notes. They needed a part, a computer part, and they couldn't find it. It was it was originally made by IBM. IBM had discontinued that part more than 25 years earlier. And in the end, they had to go and buy a secondhand part on eBay. This is NASA we're talking about. They had to go and buy a secondhand part on eBay because nobody had made a part for a computer like that since the 80s. Think about that. This is the most sophisticated machine humanity has ever built, and it was still rocking hardware from the 1980s. That's what organisations do. They don't throw stuff away if it still works. They don't replace stuff if it's still doing the job they need it to do. So, of course, TVA is using hardware that looks out of date and a little bit kitschy and a little bit old fashioned. It was new and cutting edge once. But it's not anymore. They just haven't changed it. I love that. And if that wasn't enough, oh, it's so gorgeously lit. I don't want to get all film student on you, but just take a moment. Go back and watch episode three and take a moment to appreciate the lighting of every single scene. For example, and again, I'm going to be honest, I missed this. It was a tweet from Sophie DiMartino, who plays Sylvie, that alerted me to this. I mean, I knew the lighting looked gorgeous, but in that scene, and in a couple of other scenes in that episode, but in that scene where Loki makes the comment about having had a bit of both, princes and princesses, the lighting is very reminiscent of the Bi Flag. That's just a beautiful bit of attention to detail. The directing in this is so good so so good and just every scene the lighting is gorgeous the cinematography is gorgeous it looks much more like a movie than a tv show it really really does and i mean that as a very high compliment uh, the falcon the winter soldier i loved i thought it was fantastic but to me that felt much more like a tv show this feels like a movie they've just cut up into bits and it just works so beautifully. So whilst I still kind of object that people are being expected to fork out for yet another streaming service in order to be able to see this, I've got to say, Disney Plus really is knocking it out of the park. It's It's got some great stuff on there and, you know, there's, yes, there's Amazon Prime. Yes, there's Netflix. But speaking as somebody who's only really prepared to pay for two at a time, I'm giving serious thought to dumping Netflix in, in favour of, of Disney+. Plus. I really, really am. Because if one of them's got to go, I don't think I want to lose the Marvel stuff. It's too good. It's just... Oh, and while we're on the subject of design... Something that made me so happy 
because it's indicative of how far we've come. Uh, a little story I read in the Metro of all places. The costume that Sophie DiMartino wears uh, on the show has been very cleverly designed and deliberately designed to make it easy for her to breastfeed or to express breast milk because she has a baby at the moment. And, you know, it's important to be able to do that. And let's be honest, the costumes that the Marvel characters generally wear, not the most practical. But this, this is great. I, it's an, again, it's an, an attention to detail that doesn't even show up on screen, but makes the life of the actor playing the part just that little bit better, that little bit more convenient. And it's nice to see that as an employer, Marvel is looking after its people in that way. Yeah, it's not that long since women were being shamed for breastfeeding in public, which I always thought was ridiculous. So to have your actual costume for, for a role you're playing on the telly be designed to facilitate it, I just think that's, that's such a small thing. It has no impact on the show at all, but it shows the attitude of the company. And I think I like it. I really do. Again, links to all of that in the show notes, www.destinationvenus.co.uk. And to answer a comment from a listener, because yes, some listeners do in fact get in touch on info at destinationvenus.co.uk and tell me things. Yes, I know I kept banging on about show notes last week as well, and there weren't any. There's a very simple reason for this. I forgot. I actually wrote the show notes. They were done. They were sitting as a draft uh, on the back office bit of my website. And I forgot to click publish because I am an idiot. So what I'm going to do is combine last week's show notes into this week's show notes and uh, have the show notes for episodes nine and ten together. Uh, and they will drop no later than 9 p.m. on Thursday, the 1st of July. Because I'm going to remember this time. I've actually set a note in my Google Calendar. Just as a quick aside, though, if you go looking for the show notes after 9 p.m. on Thursday, the 1st of July, get in touch on info at destinationvenus.co.uk and tell me that I'm still an idiot and I still haven't done it because I might put my phone down and not hear the Google alert and so on and so on. Um, I really am that disorganised. Sorry. And do you know what? That's just about it. It's all over by the housekeeping. So just a very quick reminder that tickets are now on sale for Thought Bubble 2021. It is happening, folks. 13th and 14th of November. You are not going to want to miss it. It is, to my mind, the best. And even if I'm biased, it's still definitely one of the best comics cons in the country, if not the world. And I don't even think that's hyperbole. I've been told that by American guests who've been over to do Thought Bubble and who want to come back because they've enjoyed it so much. So it's not just me. Everybody thinks this. And it's a great guest list this year. Gail Simone, who is one of my favourite people in comics, is coming. So is Chuck, can't pronounce his last name, dude that created Fight Club. He's coming. Um, you've got the artist David Ayer, and I'm probably pronouncing his name incorrectly as well. Um, so many amazing people coming. G. Willow Wilson, who created the current incarnation of Ms. Marvel, uh, Kamala Khan. She's coming. It's going to be stellar, and you do not want to miss it. You really really don't so uh check out the uh, the website there that's www.thoughtbubblefestival.com for all of the information on that all the latest information about exhibitors and stuff destination venus will of course be there they're having a convention in the town i live in of course we're having a stand and uh all kinds of other uh, artists and comics makers and comic sellers it's just the best weekend. I have mentioned already that as part of that, I'm trying to put together a trail of art around the town 
to do two things. I want to introduce the the non-geek population of Harrogate to the possibilities of comics and comic art. It's not just superheroes. I want to show people that. Uh, and that might, you know, generate a bit of interest for the festival, make people understand just how cool this thing that's happening in their town actually is. But I also want to get people from the convention out around the town so that they can see how brilliant Harrogate is and, you know, also spend some of their money in independent local businesses. So if you make art and you'd like your art to feature, let me know. I will get that organised. There is a curation process that we will be doing, but, you know, pretty much everyone's welcome. If you're confident enough to reach out, your artwork's probably good enough. Um, if you're a business, a coffee shop, uh, a restaurant, a cafe, a sandwich shop, a bar, and you like to have some art displayed and maybe get some convention goers coming into your business to have a look at the art, again, let me know. That I, I'm going to try and match up the art to the venue so that, you know, what's in there is appropriate. But if you have preferences, let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk or just wander into the shop when we're open and uh, have a chat. And that's pretty much it. We will be back next week, hopefully with that interview I've been promising you for, well, it's not really an interview, it's a discussion. I'm still not telling you who it's with. You will recognise them though. It's an old friend coming back and I'm really looking forward to it. Also hoping to have a couple of other interviews sorted next week. Maybe not in time for next week's show, but there's a couple of things that I'd like to discuss on air and I've got some people lined up to talk about them with. So hopefully you won't have to just be listening to me droning on for the next few weeks. There'll be a bit of variety going on as well. Uh, all that remains is uh, to tell you that the Geeking with Destination Venus show is engineered in Harrogate by Venus Rising Media. And I have to mention that because they've been moaning at me for weeks that I haven't been mentioning that. All rights are reserved, but, you know, I don't care if you share it as long as you, it's done with attribution. Really? Uh, in fact, you know, we might have to have a discussion about the morals of sharing stuff because I'm noticing piracy is getting to be a really serious problem in comics. And it's a problem it would be better if we didn't have. Anyway, that's a subject for another time. I really hope you enjoyed my little collection of geeky ramblings this week. If you did, tell a friend. Tell two friends. Because I reckon you can't have too many listeners. And just so that I can continue to sound a bit like a broken record, one more time. Any comments, suggestions, things you'd like us to explore, guests you'd like us to have on, things you'd like us to talk about, Get in touch, info at destinationvenus.co.uk or call into Destination Venus and just have a chat. I won't make you buy anything. That's not the kind of business we are. My accountant can certainly verify that. But that's it for now. Thank you so much for your kind attention. You can now go off and listen to whatever's coming up next on your device or whatever's coming up next on Harrogate Community Radio if you're listening to the broadcast version. We will be back in your ears next week with more geeky goodness until then we leave you to a world filled with football apparently we won a game this week something i'm perfectly prepared to believe but honestly history suggests it's not actually that likely we may be living in an alternate universe anyway i'll leave you to all of that don't forget the next episode of loki is out on wednesday next week so the most recent one came out yesterday. If you listen to this on the day it drops, check it out on Disney+. And uh, that's about it. All that remains is for me to remind you to be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Above all else, stay safe and stay geeky until we meet here across the internet waves once again to go a-geeking. prince must have been would-be princesses or perhaps another prince a bit of both
I suspect the same as you.